Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Endy, the 100% Canadian-made mattress. Endy was founded because a great sleep surface is essential for our well-being. I know that if I get less than seven hours of sleep, I am absolutely a monster. And you know what? Canadians deserve a company that just gets it right. Go to ND.ca and use the promo code OPPO for 50 bucks off any ND mattress. June is National Indigenous History Month, and Penguin Random House Canada is celebrating the heritage, diverse culture, and outstanding achievements of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis writers by highlighting some of the amazing array of audiobooks available by Indigenous authors. Among the titles they offer are A Mind Spread Out on the Ground by Alicia Elliott, Starlight by Richard Wagamese, Split Tooth by Tanya Tagak, and Heartberries by Therese Marie Mayette. A selection of these titles is now available as audiobooks from Penguin Random House Canada, wherever audiobooks are sold. Visit penguinrandomhouse.ca slash indigenous voices to enter to win a collection of audiobooks and learn more. From Canada Land, this is Oppo. I'm Jen Gerson, and I am heavy with a child that I can no longer feasibly abort. Get me a white wimple and a red robe, people. (laughs) And I'm Justin Ling, and these are not my problems. On this week's show, we talk about abortion. Yay. Is this a thing we actually need to be discussing in Canada in the year of our Lord 2019, blessed be? Apparently. And I talked to Courtney Skye, an Indigenous researcher about the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry, and we don't spend a single fucking minute discussing the meaning of the word genocide. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Endy. All materials and manufacturing used to make the Endy mattress are sourced within Canada. By keeping manufacturing local, Endy can avoid duties, currency exchanges, and international shipping, keeping prices as fair as possible for their Canadian customers. Endy's quality is second to none, and its pricing is even better. With a smaller price tag than its competitors, their mattresses cost between 675 and 950 Canadian dollars. That means that even the largest mattress, a California King, costs less than a thousand bucks. You simply cannot find that kind of quality to price ratio anywhere else. When mattresses are returned, and that doesn't happen very often, Endy works with local charities and furniture banks to donate the new and gently used mattresses to Canadians in need. Go to endy.ca and use the promo code OPPO for 50 bucks off any Endy mattress. That's endy.ca, promo code OPPO. Abortions for all! Boo. Abortions for none. Boo. Abortions for some tiny miniature Canadian flags for others. Yay. 
So look, Justin, I'm actually really happy that me, a pregnant woman, and a gay man are going to get to talk about abortion. I think we're like the perfect odd couple for this one. <laughs> I like it. It seems entirely appropriate to me, and I'm going to open this segment by telling you a story about how I found out that I was pregnant for the second time. Gather around, children. Gather around, children, and let me tell you all about the vomiting story. So I was actually on vacation in a beautiful sandy beach spot, and I was just having an absolute miserable time of it. The food was awful, and it smelled and looked gross, and I couldn't eat any of it. And for some reason, while everybody else we were there with was getting happily drunk, I just couldn't seem to stomach more than a single alcoholic beverage. And it's like they were pumping this weird smell into the air. And then one morning, when we were there during this trip, I woke up at 8 o'clock in the morning because we were there with my toddler, and he was waking me up, and he was really angry. And so I grabbed my toddler, and we got dressed, and we went down to the hotel's, like, Starbucks, and the thought of eating, even though I hadn't had anything to drink and wasn't hungover, the thought of eating anything was disgusting. And all I could get for myself was a venti unsweetened black tea. And I was sitting there at the table and giving my, my child, my toddler, sugary cereal because it was, it was the only food I could find. And suddenly I realized, I'm done. I can't handle this anymore. So I run, I grab my little one, scoop him under my arm, run to the Starbucks bathroom, lock the door behind me and start vomiting into this toilet. And the toilet smells like seawater because we're by the ocean. <laughs> That sounds kind of pleasant, actually. And my child is screaming next to me, like screaming next to me, crying because mommy's puking in the toilet and he doesn't know how like to fix it or make it go away. You know, I, I threw up. I felt so much better. I drank my tea. Everything was cool. We went back to the room. Four hours later, I was sitting on a beach and I thought to myself, am I pregnant? Dun, dun, dun. Turns out not only was I pregnant, but I was like six to seven weeks along, completely unbeknownst to me. This is the perfect way to this issue because, listen, I am pro-choice. I believe if you want or need an abortion, you should get one. I am horrified by the fact that in the U.S., there's now nine states that have passed laws that basically functionally restrict all abortions, if not all abortions, at least the vast majority of them, and make it hard for healthcare providers to provide abortions. But I don't really understand this issue. When people talk about late-term abortions, you know, six-week abortion ban, 10-week, I don't totally get it. I get the concept of how long a week is, but I don't know what that actually means in terms of pregnancy. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm sitting here thinking this is bad and I don't know anything else. So I think I can help you out, Justin, because I think that a lot of men who are in your situation, and by that I mean men like you, would be completely well, oblivious. What's that supposed to mean? Uh, men who don't have sex with women and don't oh, procreate. Okay, cool. yeah, yeah, go, go on. That's you. That's you. <laughs> um, would be kind of confused on these issues. And as far as I can tell, a lot of conservative men who do have sex with women are also confused about some of these issues. So I'm here to tell you all about the miracles of birth and why these, particularly these heartbeat bands or these uh, early term abortion bands are such incredible bullshit. Because essentially they are shadow bands. They are actual abortion bands. And let me explain to you why. When we say that there is something called a six-week abortion ban, in people's heads, you're thinking, oh, six weeks, that's plenty of time to realize you're pregnant and then come to a decision on the issue. Like, six weeks uh, should be plenty. Yeah, that's not actually how any of this works, because they don't count the pregnancy from the moment you actually conceive. Your pregnancy starts from the date of your last menstrual cycle. So if you are six weeks along, what that actually means is that you conceived that baby four weeks ago and you are two weeks late for your period. That's what that actually means. So your first sign that you are actually pregnant might be at about four weeks. Your pregnancy test is not even going to come back positive 
most times until you're about quote unquote four weeks pregnant within this within this type of terminology, which means by the time you're six weeks, you are two weeks late for your period and that's all. And that is if you discover that you're pregnant, like right on that line, like right at the moment when a pregnancy test is going to come up positive, you have exactly two weeks to find a potential abortion provider, schedule your appointment, get in and get out. And that is presuming you can find an abortion provider that will do this for you on on two weeks notice. Right. And this all gets even more complicated. Oh, man, we're going to get detailed here. Are you ready? Because this all gets even more complicated if you're someone like me who has always had wildly irregular periods. So if you're not on a 28 day period and you don't get your period for two, three, four weeks, as would be common for someone like me. You could very, very easily get to six, seven, eight weeks pregnant without even knowing that you were pregnant. That is not uncommon. In fact, that's shockingly common. Welcome to Menstruation Monthly with Jen Kirsten. This is the period episode, and we're going to get blunt about some of this stuff. <laughs> no, this is good because this is the thing we don't actually talk about. Like, this is the, you know, this is, it's starting to happen now. But the education on this piece has been, has been so terrible. Like, in Canada, you know, I have covered some of the debates around abortion in the House of Commons. And I can tell you that, you know, there's no law in Canada, but there's guidelines by the Canadian Medical Association and, and that functionally abortion is, is regulated by doctor associations and not the government. But I can also tell you that certain provinces have enacted these kind of shadow bans by not allowing abortion providers to open up in the province, PEI being the most recent example uh, that only recently opened its first abortion clinic. So, I mean, here's the real million dollar baby question. And <laughs> the reason why we're asking this today is because we know that both conservative and progressive movements in Canada often take their cues from what's happening in the U.S. We are deeply disappointed by uh, the backsliding on women's rights. And the Prime Minister quickly played on those fears. It's a shame that we increasingly see conservative uh, governments and conservative politicians uh, taking away rights that have been hard fought over many, many years. The Liberals even sent out this fundraising email, citing 12 conservative MPs who attended last week's March for Life. If laws are going to change in this country, it will not come just from a small group of courageous MPs. It will come because of a groundswell across this country of people like yourselves. With a number of U.S. states enacting far-reaching anti-abortion legislation in recent weeks, the debate over a woman's right to choose seems to have taken on new urgency, even here north of the border. So this is why we've started to talk about abortion a little bit more in the Canadian context and with a federal election coming up where it looks like there's at least a half decent shot of us uh, having a conservative prime minister in office um, come October. You know, will we see a similar wave of abortion restrictions here now that we have more conservative premiers and potentially a conservative prime minister? That, I think, is the, is the question that a lot of people are asking. And I think it's one that's actually worth discussing. I tend to think the answer is no, you know, like reflexively to listen to Andrew Scheer. I remember remember the night he was elected leader of the conservative party. He was asked point blank repeatedly, do you support abortion? Which he kind of wavered on. And then would you bring in laws restricting abortion? And he flatly said, no, he said, I'm not going to reopen that debate. My position is the same in Stephen Harper's position. And of course, as you know, over you know the nearly 10 years Stephen Harper was in power, he did nothing to restrict the time at which a woman could get an abortion. Of course, he also did nothing to expand that service and did allow some of his MPs to kind of jostle and and uh, agitate in favor of some sort of law regulating or, or in some cases banning abortions. So I understand the trepidation, but I, I'm also not really sure what's different now uh, with Andrew Scheer versus you know what we have with Stephen Harper. Well, I kind of tend to agree with you. My instinct is going to tell me that, you know, even if we have conservative premiers across the board and a conservative prime minister, 
abortion rights are no more under threat today than they were two years ago or three years ago or four. But to explain why that is, I think we should actually delve into some of the history here. And this is something I've been so hoping to be able to do on Oppo, because there's so much misunderstanding, not only about things like pregnancy, abortion, what late term abortion is, what early term abortion is, but there's also just a fundamental misunderstanding, even among people who are pro-choice here in this country, about what the law actually says and doesn't about abortion. This is why I kind of want to talk about the 1988 Morgenthaler ruling and what it said and what it doesn't, because even to this day, I very frequently see experts in reproductive rights quoted in newspapers saying that the Supreme Court of Canada and the Morgenthaler decision guaranteed women unfettered access to abortion at any stage of pregnancy. And that is so factually wrong. (laughs) That is not true on any level. And that doesn't reflect even the legal realities of abortion in Canada, nor does it reflect the practical restrictions that all women in Canada face, regardless of whether or not provinces are even running these shadow bans. So what the Morgenthaler decision, so I want to just explain this for five seconds. Hit me with the Morgenthaler. What the Morgenthaler decision actually said in 88 was that the previous abortion regime, which had all kinds of sort of, you know, in order to get abortion, you had to get approved by committee, essentially, um, was essentially a violation of Section 7 of the Charter that couldn't be saved under Section 1 under the Reasonable Limits Clause. The Morgenthaler decision did not guarantee women access to unfettered abortion. It simply said that the previous abortion regime was unconstitutional. And in fact, there was an expectation after that ruling came down that Parliament would get back to the grindstone and start from scratch creating a new abortion law. And in fact, subsequent governments tried to. The Mulroney government tried to, I believe, in 1988 and 1993. Both of those laws that attempted to create abortion laws under previous conservative governments they failed. They they failed in Parliament. They just couldn't get past the Senate. And, and fundamentally, and that's not terribly surprising. I mean, you know, there's not oh, a no. lot of trust with the Conservative Party to actually, you know, try to create rules around a woman's right to choose, even if they profess to be pro-choice. I mean, there's just an inherent distrust there because the Conservatives have spent so long defending the status quo and, and arguing for, for some kind of ban or, or heavy restrictions on, on a woman's access to abortion. Well, sure. But, but effectively, the whole scheme kind of stalled out. But what that essentially left us with in Canada was a giant abortion law vacuum. That's a bad pun, but we're going to keep it in. (laughs) (laughs) It left us in an abortion vacuum. And, And so what wound up happening was you had the Canadian Medical Association decide, okay, well, if there's not going to be a law on abortion, we need to have ethical guidelines and restrictions around abortion. So I'm going to be straight up here. I'm 26 weeks pregnant at this point. I cannot get an elective abortion of my healthy fetus, hopefully healthy fetus. I can't get an elective abortion at this point in this country. It's not something that I can feasibly do at this point. If I were to walk into an abortion clinic or go to my family doctor or go to my prenatal clinic, I was like, you know what? This whole pregnancy thing's fine, but I just ain't feeling it. There is no doctor who is licensed to practice in this country who would perform an abortion on me at this point. I don't actually have that choice. There is no elective abortion of a healthy fetus for me right now. I've passed the point of viability. And the reason why there isn't is because the Canadian Medical Association um, says that there's actually a whole bunch of ethical guidelines that go into whether a doctor can perform an abortion. And once you reach about 22 to 24 weeks, one of the things that they have to consider is that the fetus itself is potentially viable outside the womb. And at that point, it's no longer actually just a woman's choice. It now becomes a really complicated wing of a bunch of different medical factors from like the health and safety of the mother to the viability and the health of the fetus she's carrying. And that's where everything starts to get complicated and weighed out. So like this whole misunderstanding that A, we have constitutionally guaranteed access to unfettered abortion in this country and B, that there are no restrictions on abortion is a total fucking lie. 
That is not the regime that we are actually operating under in Canada. That is the end of my rant. <laughs> Good rant. <laughs> Obviously, there have been movements over the last couple of decades to to try to fill that void and, and create some sort of law. Obviously, you know, since Mulroney, the appetite from major parties and their leaders has been you know, zip because you just yeah. it's not a debate worth wading into. And if you're the liberal party, it's, you know, why bother? And totally zip on both sides. Like, like let me put it this way. Even if you are a conservative who's a little bit more on the pro-life side, like there is no law that you are going to be able to come up with that is going to pass muster with Section 7 that is going to appease your pro-life base. No, absolutely not. It is not possible. You, you aren't going to win. So you're going to wind up pissing everybody off if you're a conservative on this issue. You're going to wind up pissing off every single pro-choice conservative. You're going to end up mobilizing every single pro-choice progressive. And you're never going to come up with a law that's actually going to appease the base you're trying to appeal to. If you're anything like me, reading the news makes you sad, and all you really want to do is read a good fiction book. Well, good news is that June is National Indigenous History Month, and Penguin Random House Canada is celebrating the heritage, diverse culture, and outstanding achievements of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis writers by highlighting the amazing array of audiobooks available by Indigenous authors. Among those titles they have on offer are A Mind Spread Out on the Ground by Alicia Elliott, Starlight by Richard Wagamese, Heartberries by Therese Marie Mayette, and the one I'm probably most excited for that I'm definitely going to pick up, Split Tooth by Tanya Tagak. All of these books are now available as audiobooks from your favorite audio retailer, and they are perfect for listening on the go, in the car, or when you're just sitting at home in the darkness trying to avoid the horrible outside world. Penguin Random House Canada is giving away a collection of audiobooks by Indigenous authors to one lucky winner. That could be you. All you have to do to enter is visit penguinrandomhouse.ca slash Indigenous Voices. Once again, that's penguinrandomhouse.ca slash Indigenous Voices. So two weeks ago, the report of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls was released, calling the situation an ongoing genocide. The report contained hundreds of calls to action to end that genocide and to advance reconciliation. Rather than having me and Jen bicker about the issue, we've invited on Courtney Skye. She is Mohawk Turtle Clan from the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory, and she is a research fellow at the Yellowhead Institute, a First Nations-led think tank at the Faculty of Arts at Ryerson University. And she is so much better placed to talk about all of this than me and Jen. Courtney, thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm sure you followed a lot of the rollout of the, of the report, there was a pretty big debate in the media and on the political level about the word genocide. I honestly am so past the debate about whether or not it is or isn't genocide. But what did you make of the fact that that became kind of the de facto conversation, much like the conversation was had about cultural genocide after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report? I had a really clear I guess, expectation that there would definitely be some element of the report or some kind of piece of the work that had happened to date that was going to be used to derail and undermine the findings. Like, I think we had expected that there would be something of that element. The fact that it happened to be this conversation on genocide was a bit surprising. I, I, you know, I was not expecting that kind of finding from the final report, but I was expecting some sort of pushback in this way that there would be some, yeah, there would be some effort to undermine these experiences, but also the findings. The fact that it came from a place, though, that was. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's so immediate and largely uninformed by actually reading the progress report was also surprising that there was this kind of reaction from folks to not do anything to inform themselves about the evidence that was presented to them and then jump to conclusions and then dig into that uninformed conclusion is a bit surprising to me that there are people, you know, I work in policy, my positions always have to be informed by some sort of evidence or some sort of proof and people were just kind of not willing to seek that out or educate themselves at all. It struck me as being really unprofessional. So in the report itself, I mean, what stood out for you? Obviously, this was the, the culmination of several years of work, um, you know, oral testimony, uh, you know, research projects. Was there anything in here that sort of jumped out for you as being especially surprising? Or was this sort of just the kind of, I guess, the culmination of all of that? I think that there's a real timeliness to some of the recommendations. There are some that are a bit more time sensitive than others. But one of the things that I'm glad that they really pushed and went for is the first recommendation and talking about the need for a national action plan. When it comes to making decisions and when it comes to implementing or, you know, spending a large amount of money that's held in the public trust, you want to make sure that you're spending that money responsibly, but that also the things that you're investing in are actually going to make a difference in the lives of the people that are actually impacted by it. And having a national action plan for Canada around ending violence, specifically against Indigenous women, is a really key policy tool that I think would be really useful and that we're desperately lacking. We don't have any kind of like public account for the money that goes into addressing these programs, and they've been largely unsuccessful for the last number of decades. If you look at some of the statistics that come out from StatsCan, you can see that over time, women in Canada are being made safer, but Indigenous women aren't. Uh, Indigenous women represent, over time, an increased proportion of the victims of violence. And it's because of things like what the inquiry has highlighted, the fact that we're not taking into the specific systemic factors that contribute to the causes of violence against Indigenous women. A big thing that I've I've heard over the last couple of weeks, including from some Indigenous people, is that this level of cynicism, this idea that you know it's another report that's going to sit on a stack of reports that have never been acted on that go back you know right to the beginning of the 20th century, things with good ideas and clear paths forward that have never been taken up. Is there optimism on on your end that this report is actually going to change that? I wouldn't call it so much optimism, but I do see the report as being another tool that can be as the resource of families and communities, the people that are pushing for Indigenous rights, but also the safety of women, that this can be another thing that that they use to, you know, speak to the experience that they've had and to push for the kinds of rights recognition that is needed for Indigenous people. Because what the final report really struck out to me is that the fact that there's no action, the fact that, um, you know, Indigenous women aren't being made safer, it's actually to the benefit of the state. There's no incentive for them to end violence because the state actually requires violence against Indigenous women. It serves a purpose for them. It destabilizes communities. It causes harm and dysfunction in Indigenous communities. And the more that Indigenous communities are harmed, you know, it leads to the legitimacy of the Canadian state. That's how power is maintained in a colonial structure. So I think that, you know, whether it's this government, the next government, 
they're going to have to continue to deal with this, right? Like this push for safety within the Indigenous communities, that exists beyond election cycles. So this idea and these issues are going to have to be addressed by any government. And it's going to continue to be a priority. What the inquiry has done is make the connection that, you know, the push for Indigenous rights necessarily has to prioritize the safety of women if it's going to be effective. One thing that seems to be increasingly the consensus, even amongst those who I don't think you'd consider normally kind of allies of advancing Indigenous rights, is that the Indian Act has to go. But it seems the government is so just sort of locked in indecision around that. I mean, you know, could this report finally kind of be the kick in the ass that's necessary to get that conversation actually started? Or is it going to be more tinkering around the framework of the Indian Act that fundamentally doesn't remove the document itself? I think there's also a number of off-ramps that exist within the Indian Act as well. There are a lot of communities that actually aren't under the typical legislative framework that you would expect from kind of like the default within the Indian Act. There are a number of self-governing agreements or modern treaties where communities actually aren't governed by a large subset of the sections or have exemptions or, you know, specific policy areas or service areas where communities have more control that are outside of kind of the prescriptions of of the Indian Act. So there's been this really like, you know, a patchwork of policy legislative reforms at different times and different areas that impact a number of different communities, whether it's changes to band membership or, you know, the different applications of status. So there has to be some sort of conversation that is beyond the Indian Act that I don't see as being outside of a clear description of what Canada's legal obligations are to Indigenous people. You know, it might not be called the Indian Act in the future, but there definitely is a need for the recognition that Canada has a fiduciary obligation, the way the Canadian uh, Constitution is set up. There's a division of powers, but there's also a recognition of the pre-existing Indigenous laws that precede the establishment of Canada. And so, you know, this idea of reconciling that of making that clear, but also doing it in a way that clearly defines and limits what the colonial powers are of the state that exists now, that has to happen. And I think that Indigenous people are have always been very poised to have this conversation, are willing to do that, have the expertise within our communities to speak to what that looks like. And I think that that is the inevitable end to some of, some of these pushes and inquiries and, and the things that we're doing, right, is gathering and guarding the evidence that makes that more and more clear and more obvious and the only kind of space where we're going to see ourselves, you know, coming to next. Are there any calls to action from the report that kind of jumped out to you that have gotten kind of zero traction on the media level or the political level that you think are actually kind of important that haven't got the stage that they need to get? Yeah, I think there's a, a little bit of a lack of understanding of the cultural realities that are distinct amongst Indigenous communities. So when you look at kind of like how communities are constructed, the way that people relate to another. One of the issues that is maintained by the Indian Act is the idea that like Indigenous people are are distinction based and there are clear lines to be drawn between First Nations, Métis, Inuit people. And especially in urban settings, that isn't accurate. So I think that like one of the things that's being glossed over is like the reality of communities that are, you know, mixed race, biracial, but also status Indians, non-satisfied members, communities that are mixed urban communities where people live outside of their traditional territory and how are all of these things blind to the idea that Indian status or the way that people might be identified by the state isn't accurate to how they might self-identify themselves, but also 
addresses the actual needs of communities, right? And the, the communities and the way that they're constructing themselves, imagining themselves and organizing themselves, that they become the people who are driving kind of these recommendations, right? So none of the recommendations can be things that are imposed on communities or spaces regardless of where they are, whether it's, you know, an on-reserve community, rural communities in the near and far north, or urban communities. I would just like to maybe highlight one more thing from the report is that obviously people are might have a, a hard time navigating some of the, um, just how long it is. And so I think one of the things that if people are going to, you know, read the Call to Justice, one of the other things that I would recommend people start with is the annex and the summary of the Forensic Document Review Project. So this is a project that the inquiry undertook and they actually looked at about 600,000 pages of police and other emergency service related evidence gathering and went through and identified some of the real systemic barriers that we have in collecting evidence and data around the violence, prosecution of violence and you know the racism that's inherent within that, but also just the flaws in data collection and, and those kinds of things need to be addressed before we can start to really meaningfully measure our progress in ending violence. Courtney, thanks so much. Thank you. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by The New Yorker. Yes, that's right. The New Yorker likes us. The New Yorker represents the best writing in America today. Beyond publishing the best writers in the world, The New Yorker holds people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling. Both online and in print, The New Yorker covers a full range of topics, including politics, news, international affairs, climate change and the environment, popular culture and the arts, fiction, food, humor, and cartoons. Frankly, I'm honored even to be speaking their ads. Check out The Dinosaur's Last Day on Earth by Douglas Preston, Love for Your Childhood Cult by Guinevere Turner, and Indigenous Tribes Fight for Their Home by Rachel Redderer. Listeners of Oppo can get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just six bucks. Regularly, it's 12. You'll also get an exclusive New Yorker tote bag, which I got, and it's pretty cool. You'll get home delivery of the print edition each week, unlimited access to newyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day, and access to their apps, online archive, crossword puzzle, and more. Plus the tote bag. To get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just six bucks, go to newyorker.com slash oppo. Listeners save 50% off the regular price when they enter the promo code oppo. All right, Jen, as you may or may not know, it's pride season. David, can I get some pride music? Perfect. So I want to do my tiny little angry gay rant because you know what? This has been bottled up inside me for a while and I just got to let it out. Hey, man, I just ate up like 30 minutes of your time ranting about my wound. (laughs) So like, that's fair. Basically, I am tired of the prime minister going around like he's the best fucking thing that's ever happened to the queer community because you know what? Fuck you. I think the prime minister gets a lot of credit for doing certain things. He apologized for uh, the campaign to ferret out queer people from the public service and fire and demonize and investigate them. Good for you, buddy. The prime minister has also finally, at long, long last, made sure a piece of legislation that offered human rights protections to transgender and non-binary people has finally come into law. Good job, friend. Beyond that, you know what? I don't know that he gets to do a victory lap. He has done so much fundraising and celebrating and reveling in the queer community in basically self-congratulatory tones about all the important work he's done. And honestly, fuck you. Both of those things were incredibly low-hanging fruit that should have been done years ago. When it's come to the more difficult and high-level things, he's been pretty shitty. The government promised that they were going to repeal a section of the criminal code that criminalizes basically sodomy and that sets a differential age of consent 
for queer people. He took like three fucking tries to get that bill through. It took four years to actually get that done. And it was very clear from the outset it wasn't actually a priority. Nevertheless, even as they were incompetent in actually getting it through, even as criminal prosecutions continued for that section of the criminal code, he was fundraising off of it. He was congratulating himself for the important work that he's done. And he was asking for money for queer people. So wait a minute. It was illegal to have... What was it illegal to do exactly? So... After homosexuality was, quote unquote, decriminalized by Trudeau Sr. in 1969, nice, the legislation basically was enacted to continue to criminalize sodomy, but only for those under the age of 18. So the federal age of consent at the time was 14. It was subsequently raised to 16, but there was a two-year gap. Oh, so if you were like 18 years old or 17 years old engaging in gay sex. Right. That was- With a 20-year-old, for example. That would be- Then you- Yeah, that would basically be a crime. Huh. Yeah. And were people getting prosecuted for this? People were still getting prosecuted for this. Several provincial courts declared it unconstitutional because it obviously is. Nevertheless, right up into the 2010s, people were actually being arrested and prosecuted for this. In some cases, even in provinces where it was unconstitutional because the prosecutors, the Crown and the judge didn't know it was unconstitutional. Good job, guys. But it was still being used. It actually, it was not just a symbolic gesture. Repealing this section of the criminal code had real force and effect. And the federal government dragged its fucking feet on it and couldn't get it done. Fuck you guys. Well, it's also kind of interesting because, I mean, I could see, like, if you were especially a kid who had more homophobic parents, like, yes, that yeah. you would totally, totally use that law to punish your gay kid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's 100% a real absolute danger. Never mind that there was a constant threat that being arrested as, you know, a young gay person, you have that law basically dangled over you saying, if you don't confess to this other crime or if you don't do X, Y, and Z, we're going to prosecute you for this. And you don't know, as a 17-year-old queer kid, what laws are unconstitutional. It was actually a real thing that was used to target and harass queer people for many decades going back. So repealing this actually had a big impact. And the federal government, obviously didn't think it was a priority. On top of that, the Canadian government has not done its homework and gotten rid of the gay panic or the trans panic defense. So in the criminal code, rooted back in old English law going back to the 18th, 19th century, it is not considered murder if you are doing so in self-defense or in some sort of panic. And these panics are sort of specifically prescribed in old English law. And one of those panics is basically an assault on one's masculinity. And this has been basically interpreted over the years to mean he came on to me, he wanted to have gay sex with me, so I stabbed them to death. I'm not guilty. And it's been used over the years. Huh. I didn't know that. That's actually really interesting. It has been used over the years to acquit people who have murdered gay men, and it's been used to uh, basically drop those first or second degree murder charges down to manslaughter. Um, so in a lot of cases like where recently, you should like get- in, like in modern, Is there a modern case you could point there's to? There's a whole bunch of modern cases. This was used aggressively right up to the 90s and has still been used in isolation in one-off cases right up until a couple of years ago. For all we know, there's still cases like this winding their way through the courts that have not been covered because they're predominantly used outside of major urban centers where coverage of court proceedings is a little more spot. This is absolutely still being used, and it was still used uh, in a lot of times against transgender people. You know, a killer would say, mm-hmm. I had no idea they were transgender until we got into bed and I freaked out and I stabbed them. That was still being used until quite recently. There could be a federal ban or a federal directive on stopping those types of defenses, and there hasn't been. We've left it to the courts, and as you know, the courts are not always great on this, especially when there's not a decision from the Supreme Court. So again, federal government had an easy, easy opportunity to do something meaningful for queer people, didn't fucking do it. 
Finally, what about the gay blood ban? The Liberal Party ran in 2015 pledging to repeal the gay blood ban. They said it was unscientific. They said it was discriminatory and inherently homophobic. They got into government. Did they repeal it? No. They lessened the ban to a one-year ban and now most recently to a three-month ban. So to give blood as a gay person or a man who has sex with men or a woman who has sex with men who have sex with men, you have to stay celibate for three months to a year. Though actually, in effect, that ban doesn't apply to women. It really only applies to gay men as far as I understand. But the continuance of this ban surely isn't rooted in homophobia in a liberal government, it's got to be rooted in some kind of science. It's not actually rooted in any kind of science. The ban was brought in entirely on the belief that the tainted blood scandal was the fault of gay men, and that's not the case. In a lot of cases, the transmission of HIV and hep C throughout Canada was the fault of the Canadian blood services. They were buying untested and unregulated blood from U.S. prisons, and then they were distributing it into the the blood system without any sort of testing. That is who's to blame. No, no, let's not blame gay people for, for the tainted blood scandal. That was clearly simply a Canadian blood service cock-up. But one of the lessons of that that scandal was that they had to be much, much more stringent about the populations that they were taking it from. Well, no, they had to be more stringent on the testing and the screening. Instead of actually getting better at screening, let's say checking to see if the person is monogamous, how many sexual partners they've had, whether or not they've used protection, they instead chose to ban entire classes of people, intravenous drug users, gay men, and and a handful of, of other folks. And there are certainly individual criteria, like did you travel to the UK between the years of 1998 and 1999, things like that. They're not necessarily exclusionary, uh, but can be, or at least kind of help inform a decision of whether or not you're able to give blood. Being a gay man, having sex with men, completely disqualifies you from giving blood. Now, that may have made sense. You could make the argument that that made sense in 1995 when testing was less than perfect and gay men had extraordinarily high rates of HIV transmissions. Today, gay men tend to know their status better than uh, anybody else. They tend to be on treatment better than anybody else. They tend to use protection better than anybody else. Never mind that the testing procedures are so good that you're able to catch uh, the HIV virus within about nine days of transmission. That means there's not been a single reported case of HIV transmission through the Canadian blood system in decades, literally decades. Hmm. This is entirely a policy that was adopted for homophobic reasons that is not being reversed because the government doesn't want to make waves. It's inherently conservative. They are relying on a reflexive homophobic attitude, and there's really no scientific basis for this. I have inquired extensively to the health ministry and Canadian Blood Services. They cannot actually produce scientific literature that supports this decision because there isn't any. There you go. You know what else gays really care about? Access to information reform. Let me. <laughs> no, shut up. Stop it. You've had your moment. This is Done. Pride Month, Jen. I will rant about whatever I want. Fucking stop it. <laughs> Happy Pride, everybody. <laughs> Happy Pride. That's it for Oppo. We'll be back in two weeks. Commons continues their look at Canada's oil industry next week. Get in touch at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at OppoCast. Let us know what you think. This episode was produced by David Crosby for Canada Land Media. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton and the theme music was by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week and that word is uterus. Hey. 
Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.